a almost one-day conference on innovation and economic reform in Europe and in Japan. Um, it's a great pleasure to uh, host and co-organize this event today. And let me just start by saying um, this is a round table, so you don't have to sit there in the back. I mean, some people can move up here in the front. Mm -hmm. So please don't shy away. Um, Jolt and, and others, I mean, you can really come here uh, somewhere closer. You don't have to sit in the last row. So um, that's, um, that's my, my first remark. Uh, second uh, remark, it's, uh, of course, um, uh, this is not under Chatham House rule, but a public event. So um, I think we are being recorded or live streamed, if I'm, oh. if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we are live streamed. Okay. Wow, wow. So uh, the world is watching us. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> okay. a kind of scary. <laughs> uh, so um, last point, um, it's of course a great pleasure to uh, welcome um, uh, to, uh, Tamotsu Nakamura, uh, who's professor and the vice dean of the Graduate School of Economics of Kobe University uh, here at Bruegel. Um, Kobe University has been a partner, and I think uh, for the third or fourth, third time, uh, fourth time, fourth time, fourth time uh, um, for for our joint event, we've covered different um, issues comparing uh, Japan and um, and the EU. Um, at some stage, we compared uh, monetary policies. Um, we had yesterday already some some interesting discussions <laughs> on on monetary policy, uh, where the Bank of Japan is, of course. <laughs> Uh, perhaps leading uh, leading the global discussion on monetary policy, um, and <clears throat> we've had discussions on uh, fiscal policies. We've discuss had discussion discussions on uh, banking and how banking uh, reform is is undergoing and uh, how it is advancing or not advancing. And uh, now today we will talk about um, innovation. And um, I think it's actually a very important topic and a, a quite a topical topic uh, because um, I think policymakers um, around the world are realizing that uh, for some reason productivity grows um, and um, uh, the speed of innovation in our economies is actually uh, going down and is slower than uh, what it used to be 10 years ago, 20 years ago um, and even 30 years ago. And there is various different explanations of why that is the case. Um, but uh, I think there's not a lot of work comparing um, Japan and the European Union on that dimension. And I think that's what we really want to look at today um, and, and, and learn from, from each other. Um, okay, so, so I think without much further ado, perhaps I, I give the floor to you. Thank you so much again yeah. for co-organizing and for being here. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, as he mentioned, I'm Tamsu Nakamura of Kobe University. I'm currently a vice dean of the Graduate School of Economics, Kobe University. Um, this is my very first visit to Brussels, and of course, uh, very first visit to the, this wonderful institute, uh, Bruegel. And also, it is the first time for me this conference series has continued for the past four years. So this is the first joint conference uh, of Bruegel and Kobe University. With a great effort done by uh, the people in this uh, institute, uh, this successful uh, conference series has been possible. So quite naturally, our special thanks first goes to the uh, director of this institute, Dr. Guntram 
world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, also, uh, we appreciate every single effort done by the staff in this Bruegel Institute. So thank you very much for your excellent job. Excellent job, thank you very much. Okay, so uh, uh, it was big news there in Japan last week that His Majesty King of Belgium and Her Majesty Queen of Belgium visited Japan in commemoration of the 150-year anniversary of the friendship between Belgium and Japan. Uh, I was very surprised to know that the friendship began before the Meiji Restoration, which took place 1868. So it means uh, even Japanese samurai had some Bel Belgian friends then, right? It is our great honor that this conference has been endorsed officially by the Ministry a Japanese Ministry of Holding Affairs as one of the special events to celebrate the 150 years anniversary of the friendship. We thank uh, the mission of Japan to European Union for his, its continued uh, support. We are also very, very grateful to the uh, Japan Foundation and the Toshiba International Foundation for uh, their uh, financial assistance. Without their general support, I cannot be here uh, as one of the delegation of the Kobe universities. As he mentioned, uh, the theme of this year's conference is innovation and economic reform in Europe and Japan. This is not only, only an essentially important topic for the both region, Europe and Japan. Uh, but also are very, very timely issues. Although it has not yet uh, begun, I'm pretty sure that the conference will be very successful at the end. I really look forward to all the presentation and the discussion to come. Thank you very much in advance for your uh, invaluable input to the conference. That's all, thank you very much. So I think then we can move to the yeah, yeah. First, first panel already. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let me just also add okay. thank you for um, the Toshiba International Foundation and Japan Foundation for, for the support yeah, exactly. uh, to make that conference happen. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Okay, so please. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. <coughs> Now I will be the first, uh, the, the, the chair of the first session, first, uh, first what to say, first panel, okay? Uh, this panel consists of two presentations. One is by... Uh, Professor Hagiwara of Kobe University. The other is Scott Marcus, the senior fellow at this institute, Bruegel, right? So first uh, presentation will be by the Taiji Hagiwara, Professor Taiji Hagiwara, please. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, <coughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, I talk about the uh, innovation maybe from EU and Japan, but actually the, my talk is concentrated on Japan. Uh, the first, I'd, I'd like to mention about the international competitiveness and uh, uh, around expenditure, patenting activity, and we find that international competitiveness in electronics industry is losing competitiveness. But uh, how is the reason why? And uh, how about the automobile industry? And uh, 
related but uh, other issues. And small and medium enterprise in Japan is the pro hazard program. Yeah. <coughs> uh, first, uh, international competitiveness. Uh, trade balance is uh, deteriorating due to stoppage of nuclear power plant and uh, yeah. Uh, as is not But trade balance as a whole is decreasing because of increase of uh, import of crude oil in, uh, due to nuclear power plant stoppage. And uh, if we see by uh, the total trade balance and uh, some of machinery industry, uh, machinery industry means uh, general machinery, electric machinery, transport machinery, and precision mas instrument. And preci precision instrument is rather small, but uh, some of these four industries trade balance is, uh, used to be uh, more than half of trade surplus in Japan. But, <coughs> and, uh, and, but uh, the trade surplus in four machinery industry is de <coughs> decreasing recently. So we see um, in the uh, by industry, uh, general machinery, uh, the trade surplus is growing, and uh, in spite of Lehman shock, Lehman shock made a big decrease, but uh, it is recovering. On the other hand, oh no. Uh, on the other hand, uh, electric machinery is decreasing. Uh, the trend began, uh, began from early 1990s, and uh, it was uh, declining until 2000, and just recovery. But after the Lehman shock, there was a sharp decline in trade balance in electric machinery. And transporting equipment is increasing in trade surplus. And precision instrument um, size is small, but uh, it is decreasing uh, trade surplus, and currently uh, it is in deficit. So, uh, uh, we we discussed later that uh, why the electric industry and the precision, uh, electric industry is losing international competitiveness, and uh, we referred the how the transport equipment industry can keep competitiveness or not. Uh, first, uh, uh, second, uh, we saw uh, we showed around uh, the expenditure it is. Uh, uh, R&D intensity divided by GDP, and left-hand side is general expenditure, including uh, uh, government expenditure, and right-hand side is only business expenditure. The Japan, uh, Japanese R&D intensity becomes uh, top, top in the world since 1990s, and uh, recently, uh, Korea took over in Japan, and uh, the situation is the same uh, in general expenditure and business expenditure. And China is also growing faster. Uh, faster. And R&D in 
intensity in Japan is still high. Uh, Korea is 4.3, uh, and Japan is 3.6, is the second one. Um, but uh, due to Japanese gro economic growth is slow, so amount of expenditure is not so growing fast as other countries like uh, China. And so next, uh, which I show uh, individual companies performing and R&D uh, is from, the data is from EU R&D scoreboard 2015. And uh, just I show the ranking and uh, uh, EU countries are blue one and uh, uh, Japanese companies are olive color. And Toyota, Honda, and Nissan, and Toshiba, uh, sorry, uh, Sony, Panasonic, and Denso, uh, automobile parts company, and Takeda Pharmaceutical, and Toshiba, and Canon is in the number, uh, best of 60s. Uh, from uh, from classifying uh, uh, top 500 R&D performing company by industry, I we see the several characters. Um, first, automobile and parts industry in Japan is largest, uh, 16 of uh, 53, and electric and uh, electrical equipment is. 15 in 39. And also, uh, bottom line, leisure goods includes Panasonic, Sony, and Nikon. I don't know why they are leisure goods, but <laughs> the data sh shows. And <clears throat> on the other hand, uh, weakness related to uh, electric and industry is technology, hardware, and equipment. Uh, eight in 81, and uh, software and computer service, two in 45. Yeah, uh, software and computer service is like, uh, like Microsoft and Google, uh, etc. And Japanese company is listed as a software computer service, uh, Fujitsu and NEC. Uh, my, my old view, uh, Fujitsu and Nissan, uh, NEC is also an electric company, but uh, uh, it, they tend to uh, try to be a uh, software and computer service. And um, <coughs> technology hardware equipment, uh, Intel, Cisco, Qualcomm, and the Canon is listed from Japanese industry. And also the aerospace defense and pharmaceutical and biotechnology is weak in Japan. Uh, there is no uh, big R&D performing company in aerospace and defense, and uh, pharmaceutical and biotechnology seven in 54, but uh, uh, the top Takeda is probably, yeah, uh, number 50, uh, 45, and the biggest one, biggest one is uh, Novartis, Roche, and Johnson Johnson's and Pfizer. So the very big difference between top pharmaceutical company and Japanese pharmaceutical company. <coughs> a 
next uh, I show patenting activity uh, uh, to compare <coughs> EU and Japan and so I I focus to US patent office patent and trade office uh, and uh, number of patent applied to USPTO uh, in the computer electronic electronic and optical product industry Sony, Toshiba, Fujitsu, Seiko, Epson is the top four, up, uh, followed by Apple and Intel. And in electrical equipment, top is Panasonic, and next is Philips, and Hitachi, and Mitsubishi Electric, and uh, follows. In machinery and equipment, the top is Canon. Uh, Canon is uh, semiconductor manufacturing ins uh, instrument, a uh, device uh, maker. And uh, Ricoh, Ricoh is uh, uh, photocopy and uh, various uh, machinery producer. And Canon GE, Ricoh, Siemens is a top four. And motor vehicle, uh, the Robert Bosch Denso is top, and uh, Honeywell, Nissan, Ising is following, and Daimler by BMW and Audi is following. <coughs> uh, I don't know why the Toyota do not appear in this uh, statistic, but I'm afraid my mismanipulation of patenting <laughs> search. Uh, so, the problem is uh, electronic industry is losing comp uh, competitiveness. As I showed, the trade balance is deteriorating since the uh, 1990s, and uh, recently, uh, after Lehman shock, the decline is sharply. But uh, they are trying, uh, they are making a large amount of R&D, and a lot of number of patents. So this is a problem. Uh, usually, the Japanese electronic industry's decline is explained by exchange rate and FDI. The appreciation of yen was in Japanese exporter competitiveness. And in and Japanese company moved production plant from Japan to foreign countries. But uh, the situation is same as in automobile industry. They, uh, Toyota and Nissan, moved the production plant in EU and United States, but uh, they have also strengths in uh, competitiveness. So the problem uh, why Japanese electronics companies lose, lost competitiveness. Uh, several phenomena, uh, Japanese companies exit from liquid crystal, TV and the shop was bought by Honghai of Taiwan this year. Uh, only uh, electronic component companies uh, with high quality have uh, competitiveness, Murata Manufacturing, and uh, someone says, uh, someone uh, de engineered iPhone, de resolved, and by microscope, they watch the how, which companies the component is come from. Then, then 
they find a half of component of iPhone is made by Japanese companies. So uh, the, the brand of Japanese electronic company is uh, decreasing, but uh, the electronic component companies has is high quality. Uh, low quality makes the uh, Chinese and Korean and uh, so on, but the uh, high quality has even uh, competitiveness. But the uh, Chinese and uh, uh, Korean and Taiwan companies' technological ability is increasing, so I don't know what, how long the, this advantage is kept, will be kept. And uh, so uh, we uh, there are three uh, explanations of decline of electronics company in Japan. One is uh, fail to get global standard. And in Japan, it is called Galapagos syndrome. Uh, Galapagos in the Galapagos Island, uh, within Ireland, uh, the several birds or turtles evolved originally, but it different from whole world standard. Uh, in Japan, uh, there is a still uh, the population is uh, 100, 100 million, and the market is still large. And so innovation, and uh, Japanese company competed each other within Japan and evolved the new, uh, new technology innovation and uh, becomes the original product. Uh, in only in Japan, but uh, is the, in the world, the evolution goes different way. The, one of the case is mo uh, mobile phone. Uh, mobile phone, uh, originally the frequency band allocation is uh, auctioned in many countries. So many countries suffered by the high, high, price, of, uh, high price of payment so they, they have to choose cheap technology, cheap and low technology in communication system. So the developing countries and many countries up, up, uh, adopted GSM technology. But in Japan, uh, government lent frequency band freely, in no charge. Uh, recently, uh, they ch uh, charged by auction. But uh, at, the, at the first time, uh, it was uh, provided by freely. The provider could choose high quality uh, communication system. So uh, they made a good uh, communication system, and, uh, but uh, it was not a global standard. And another example is usage of uh, mobile phone as a browser. Uh, in Japan, it's called iMode, uh, produced by NTT. It was introduced in 1999. Uh, it's the first in the world. But uh, Japanese communication system did not, was not up, adopted in other foreign countries. So the iMod technology is not become, uh, has not become, became, uh, become a global standard. And next is uh, the pursuit of two high technology. And the history of dynamic RAM uh, is uh, originally, the dynamic RAM is used in mainframe computer 
manufacturers. Uh, mainframe computer manufacturers uh, required high quality and long life. But uh, after 1980s, uh, PCE became uh, growing. Uh, PCE changed the model frequently because of uh, uh, operation system is evolving. So the um, arm for PC has a short life, like uh, five years. Um, but Japan, Japanese company stick to produce a good, uh, high quality. If we, if we sell good quality, then a consumer, no, a PC producer will follow us. But uh, uh, on the other hand, Samsung adjusted a long, uh, no, short life and low quality, but low price. So Japanese company uh, was defeated. And the uh, last point is uh, fibrous versus uh, electronics machine uh, manufacturing service. The, the, the beginning of personal computer, the IBM PC was adopted, uh, ad IBM PC adopted uh, Microsoft operating system and Intel CPU and other uh, components from, by outsourcing. Uh, so, uh, the components with uh, some technical standard is produced by different companies and they, they compete each other. And the PC assembler, yeah, uh, the work of PC assembler is designed and uh, purchased from uh, component suppliers. So, and then uh, the separation of design and production becomes dominant. Uh, with a, one example is Apple and Honghai. Apple is a US uh, manufacturer, but uh, actually Honghai is producing iPhone. But a Japanese company mm, stick to integration of design and production. And we have to produce within, uh, produce design and produce within companies. But um, it was not a trend of and the world. So uh, they failed to specialize design, to be, become a design company or a production company. Uh, Murata Manufacturing is one of the uh, components that uh, succeed in a production company. Uh, so, uh, my explanation of electronic company uh, is uh, mainly depends on the so-called modular production. And uh, Japanese analyst, uh, Professor uh, Fujimoto in Tokyo University says, automobile is different, in the, uh, different from modular production. It is uh, integral production technology that uh, Compared to production, uh, module production, the automobile components need uh, adjustment between component and uh, uh, the, to, to decrease noise and total balance is required. So the, just buying a 
components and assemble is not enough. So this, uh, there, there is a strength in Japanese automobile company. But however, the, even in Japanese company, the, to cost cut, uh, uh, cut cost and the common use of components requires. So importance of module production is increasing. And currently, uh, Internet of Things uh, is discussed quite recently. And uh, in, the automobile uh, in the automobile, the concept uh, connected car is stressed that uh, a car installed, installed with uh, internet control everything and uh, safety drive and uh, automobile drive and so on. The, there is a possibility of shift from hardware to software. Um, maybe 400 years ago, six, six and 500 years ago, IBM was a hardware company. But uh, after Microsoft uh, grew, then the main, main player becomes hard, uh, become software, man, um, software companies. So the there's a possibility of <coughs> essence of automobile may shift from vehicle to software. In the case, the, there is no guarantee that uh, current major car maker uh, survive in the new situation. And I took uh, last issue, then it's different from previous uh, electronics versus automobile in large company, but a small and medium-sized company in Japan is told uh, strength of Japanese technology. Uh, the problem is number of SME is decreasing since 1980s. Uh, this figure shows from 1999, it was uh, 4.8 uh, million companies, uh, 4.8 million SMEs uh, was there uh, in Japan, but now it is 3.8 million SMEs. Recent trend is uh, from 90, uh, sorry, uh, 2012 to 2014, the micro business decreased uh, 21,000, but the medium enterprise grew uh, for, uh, 47,000, so the decrease uh, becomes slower. So uh, the small number of entry uh, may come from uh, three factors. There is a lack of uh, entrepreneurship in Japanese people. Um, uh, related to this, uh, there is a high risk to in face to failure. Uh, if, we, if the entrepreneur go bankrupt, then uh, he, he cannot challenge again. No one trusts or credits to him. So, uh, entrepreneur and uh, risk of entrepreneur is very high. And other thing is that there is a very regulation to create a new business. Uh, Japanese regulation, uh, I, I don't like the regulation trend, but uh, if we trend, uh, if we create new business, then there is some regulation 
to that business and uh, existing company can operate, but new, business, new idea cannot uh, be adopted. But uh, in Japan, small and medium companies uh, should be vitalized. vitalized. <laughs> and another topic is uh, university startups. Uh, Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry promoted to increase university startups uh, during 2001 to 2004. Uh, it aimed uh, we should make a uh, uh, assist uh, to build a uh, university startup, uh, ten uh, no thousand startups until 2004. It was uh, achieved, but uh, recently the number is in major uh, one thousand four uh, eight hundred is kept uh, during. Uh, 2007 and 2015. And recently, the venture capital uh, was allowed to invest in university startups. But so the, there may be uh, university startup may increase again, and it may cause new uh, source of innovation. Uh, my story is almost finished. Uh, electronics industry is losing competitiveness, failing getting global standard, uh, failing in catching market needs, failing to in shifting to fabulous. Well, uh, automobile industry is has a competitive at this moment, but IoT may destroy this current situation, and stimulating new entry is important. That's all. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Hagiwara. At this time moment, I will take the kind of quick question, such as a clarifying question. If you have the, those kind of quick questions, please raise your hands. Yes, please. Good morning. I'm Vincent Kuhn from the OECD. I'm mm -hmm. uh, supervising the work we do on Japan. Uh, mm -hmm. Every two years, we do an economic survey of Japan. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we discuss at length in surveys is um, SMEs. Um, <coughs> and indeed, the number of SMEs has declined over time. But mm. the question is whether this is good news or bad. And uh, from our point of view, the problem is uh, indeed, as you underline, uh, uh, obstacles to entry and entrepreneurship. Uh, mm. However, there's also uh, insufficient exit of mm. zombie SMEs. Yeah. And yes. so uh, there is a need to <laughs> change the culture of failure. Yeah. Uh, uh, you also alluded to that, yeah. to uh, make it uh, not shameful to, 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 to fail uh, at yeah. least once. Yeah. In fact, we met a venture capitalist mm -hmm. who uh, explained to us that mm -hmm. he never mm -hmm. funds uh, people who haven't mm -hmm. failed at least once. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and that's the, probably the, the right approach. Mm -hmm. uh, Thank, thank you for comment. Uh, I didn't mention about the exit. Uh, yes, uh, exit uh, is forced uh, after and uh, exit increase after the burst of bubbles, and bank didn't lend money to SMEs. And uh, but uh, the but uh, this this uh, this uh, uh, yes, it's a good good. Good situation. For example, compared to Chinese 
uh, companies, uh, they, they survive with uh, government assistance. Assistance, but uh, in Japan the number is decreasing uh, and the exit is increasing. But uh, furthermore, uh, the entry is important. Uh, what is what I, I want to say? Go ahead, please. Um, Jonathan Cave, University of Warwick. Uh, on this question of the dynamics or the sort of life cycles, there are sort of because this is a European problem as well, but it manifests itself in a different way. By looking at the United States and seeing that SMEs were key to innovation there, there is a kind of rhetoric which says that just because something is an SME, it must therefore be good. And if the incentive is for the SME to come into being just to start up, and any SME starts up, well, yes, they make up a large proportion of the startups, but also a very large proportion of the failures here, because they're not sustained in a zombie existence. However, the selection effect as to which ideas uh, get funded, and what the lesson is, the sort of incentive effect as to whether entrepreneurial risk-taking is reinforced, or good risk-taking is reinforced, or whether instead you just get mere innovation, uh, or you know, just something that's new, or just something that's small. Uh, the other thing I would mention is that there is a presumption that all SMEs should be gazelles or unicorns, yeah? that all of them wish to grow. And neither from an economic nor from a social perspective. Is that obvious? The world has changed. Applying obsolete models to it may not help. But it is interesting to contrast let's say, the failure modes of the European approach and the Japanese approach. Do you just uh, get them to start up and let them die? Or do you get them, once they've started up, keep them alive? Uh, now the one's obvious. I agree that the, the, the exit, a, a, a bad companies should exit, and, uh, but, uh, mm, yeah, many, uh, I mentioned the four million company SMEs uh, in Japan, but uh, uh, the number of uh, who uh, number of company who tried to innovate and failure is not so big, <laughs> and uh, most of them are traditional small medium shop, and so I I need to focus how the innovative companies and fail and success. But uh, there's, no, uh, there's not so good data. Gerhard Stark, uh, College of Europe in Peking University HSBC Business School. Uh, concerning your uh, analysis that there is a failure in getting global standards for Japanese <coughs> companies, do you have any feeling what part is related maybe to uh, support from public side in other parts of the world to getting more global standards and whether this is therefore mainly a failure of Japanese companies or whether there might be also less public instruments to support to build up uh, common standards. You know in Europe we have Sen and Senelex, these are uh, institutions who try to help industries to build up standards. So my question is a bit, the distribution of uh, the competences or the responsibility between the private sector and public efforts to help to get global standards. And whether there you have any judgment if you compare the different parts of the world. 
traditionally Japanese companies and the government did not focus on standardization. At the recent 10 or 15 years, the, they know, uh, we know, <laughs> we find that uh, standardization is important. And, um, the, and we envy the EU, company, EU government has uh, 28 votes <laughs> in determining a standard. At, uh, and uh, on the other hand, Japanese company people and government has uh, just less ability to persuade foreign people. <laughs> So the communication ability and we add the, the and effort, both in public and private, is required more and more. And uh, recent news is uh, uh, Abe and Merkel met a meeting in April and uh, they agreed to cooperate in IoT, a, Japanese, a German version of uh, IoT Industry 4.0. And uh, other thing is uh, uh, Japanese, uh, Japanese and American IoT consortium will try to make agreement to make a standard, new standard. So uh, public, public and private will make more effort on IoT standardization. Thank you. Uh, yes, Christine Hattin. I'm a professor at Aix Marseille and do research partly in Boston. Uh, I have a question on uh, your how do you deal with uh, the link between flexible technologies in car industry and internet of everything? And also, you didn't mention <coughs> pharmaceutical innovation. Uh, pharmaceutical is also very affected by internet of everything and the uh, break of uh, the traditional industry boundaries. So uh, how do you see the connection between internet of everything and uh, flexible technologies or the way you used to assemble the different innovation process inside the industry? Yeah, uh, I didn't mention the pharmaceutical industry in Japan because uh, uh, innovative ability is low. And, but um, we have uh, high-performance computer uh, in Kobe that is, uh, that is highest uh, in the private use. Uh, many uh, HSPC uh, high-performance computer is used in military purpose, but uh, a Japanese high-performance computer is available in private company. And uh, pharmacy, in pharmaceutical innovation, uh, it will help uh, in, for Japanese uh, innovation. But uh, the, I don't know how the, <laughs> the result will go going on. And, Sorry, uh, what is the first question? It's uh, the, the innovation in the car industry is, car industry. Um, well, I work with some professor in France and mm. a lot of deals between the mm. Japanese and the French car industry mm. has um, evolved with a lot of uh, what they call flexible technology. Mm. 
And my question was uh, with the Internet of Everything and the uh, explosion of the boundaries, mm. uh, how do you see the uh, link with these flexible technologies? Mm. Um, uh, <coughs> the, the, the automatic uh, driving technology it will be based on uh, so-called uh, artificial intelligence and um, the car, car making, automobile making is uh, still strong in Japanese industry, but uh, such kind of artificial intelligence is not, uh, it, they're trying, but uh, not good ability still now. So uh, the possibility that uh, Google will <laughs> dominate uh, automobile industry. And it's not an answer to your question. No, no, no. Uh, thank you for your very inspiring presentation. So I, I had one question on this wonderful story of mobile technology and uh, the 1999 first, what was it, an internet mobile internet browser, and that then this standard didn't become a global standard. And I think Harold already asked this question. I mean, why, why didn't that happen? Is it because the, the market is... Uh, so so was so restricted and access to that market was so restricted that it couldn't develop. Is it market size? Is it, is it the scaling? And is that perhaps the reason why um, uh, so many of uh, of the modern standards in uh, in some of the the, the modern uh, internet companies come from the U.S. because they have sort of the biggest markets where a market where they can scale. By the way, the Chinese also have that by. Uh, you know, make it putting putting a wall around around the internet, and so they can develop certain markets and you know really scale them up because they have a lot of people, right? Is that is that is it scaling or what? What has really uh, hampered that? But I'm sure Scott also perhaps in his presentation. Yeah. I, don't know. I actually wanted to just jump in with one thought related to that question, yeah, yeah. if okay, I might, okay. um, which is I know there was an article in the Times years ago that argued also that the Japanese feature phones were very much customized for Japanese taste yes. and usage, yeah. and, and that a, a lack of willingness to, uh, to uh, consciously address a global market mm -hmm. had also played a large role. Okay. So perhaps you could address that together with okay, Richard's okay. question. Okay. It's a very inspiring question. We'll go back to the discussion after the second presentation. So, okay. So. Oh, it's okay. So the second presentation will be done by Scott Marcus, uh, the senior fellow of the Bruegel, right? Thank you very much. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Uh, well, uh, I'd, I'd uh, also like to thank Professor Hayuwa for a, a, a very, very interesting and data-rich presentation. I'll be, I'll be making some uh, brief comments about the, uh, the, the discussion that we've had in Europe really over a period of decades. On, uh, on, on innovation and uh, on challenges to innovation in the European ecosystem. So um, uh, I'll be talking first about um, basically the innovation system. Frequently it's helpful to analyze things in terms of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's a common management framework, and I think it's a useful way to start the discussion. Um, I'll, I'll touch a bit on the question of too little investment in R&D. Our challenges in Europe are different from those that you just laid out. Too few startups, challenges in scaling up, lack of venture capital, uh, European attitudes to disruptive change, fear of failure, which very much echoes the theme that you were raising, and uh, then uh, closing with opportunities and threats. So that's basically the sequence that I'll be following here. 
Um, and uh, Europe clearly, as far as innovation, has numerous strengths. We've got a talented, well-educated, creative population, strong general technology base. Uh, industrial base is not as eroded as some places. Um, and, um, and yet we have insufficient private investment in R&D. We have government investment in research and development, but not all of that turns into productizable uh, innovation. Uh, an entrepreneurial culture that's weaker than in many global competitors, and I think here we all look to our, our North American um, competitors and uh, contributors. And um, challenges in financing uh, entrepreneurial business and sort of a general problem, not, not specific to innovation, but it touches everything, an expensive social system and an aging population. So those are some of the framing issues. And um, there we go. So the same issues that you were talking about at the outset with the level of investment, the fraction of GDP, um, there's been concern in Europe for a good two decades uh, over the, the, this issue. Um, and uh, certainly if we look to you folks, uh, as we just saw, you're maintaining a level of about 3%. Um, the US around 2.7. 3% has been the target in Europe. Well, it's a target that hasn't been met, and in, uh, except in, in, a, in a few places in Europe, yes, but in Europe as a whole, certainly not. Um, and also, um, if, if you look at the trend here from 2008 to 2013, this is Eurostat statistics, not only is it not being met, but it doesn't look very likely to be met by 2020, which was the target. Uh, the, the, there, there's a slight uptick, but it's glacial. And so again, for, for us, uh, where you described your problem as being that you have the investment, not all of it gets you where you want to go. Uh, here we simply don't have the investment in the first place. Um, now, the, uh, this was a goal in the, in the uh, Lisbon strategy going back to 2000. That was supposed to be achieved in 2010. Um, widely acknowledged as, uh, as far from achieved and uh, continues to be a target for uh, the, the current industrial planning, the Europe 2020 strategy, and still doesn't look like we're getting there. Now, it's not an across-the-board problem. You know, this is a problem in the average. The best companies probably invest as much as the best companies anywhere. Uh, less good companies and also SMEs tend to put less money into R&D, uh, and also, very significantly, tend to put less money into incorporating ICTs, computing technology, into their businesses, uh, which means that they're, in terms of productivity, there's a productivity gain that's not achieved but could be achieved. Um, so, so there we go. That's sort of a background, and um, that, that drives a lot of the rest of the discussion that we've been having in Europe for, as I say, for decades about how to strengthen the innovation system. Click, click. <laughs> is anyone in the, in the booth? Oh, oh. oh my gosh. It is not innovative. <laughs> yeah, this is. Good <laughs> joke. Yeah. I use too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe we need work on battery technology. Okay, it should just be the right hand button. There we go. Oh. Yes. Okay. So, well, if you notice, this is stoking the engine of innovation. It's perhaps not the most modern innovation, but it's still a question of stoking the engine of innovation or the battery of innovation. So what, what has been done? What are the issues? Oh, it's working now. Good. Okay. So a, a first question, of course, is simply about the number of startups in Europe. Uh, historically, this was a quite major concern. 
Uh, actually, there, there are a number of indicia that suggest that this is getting a bit better over the years. Um, generally, startups, uh, certainly uh, uh, startups based on computing technology are just easier to start up because of the technologies that are available, cloud computing, things like that. The, the ability to have an infrastructure without having to have your own servers and such uh, has, has made it easier to get in the game and, and start an entrepreneurial venture and an entrepreneurial career. So that's helpful. And in areas like uh, media and gaming and communications, actually the number of startups is, is not so bad compared to, let's say, the United States. Um, there are some hubs, Amsterdam, London, Berlin, um, that are actually doing pretty well. The level of venture funding is better than it was. Um, that's still a long way from where we would like it to be. And in some of the southern countries, recognizing the, the various challenges that they face, struggling economy, need to achieve more employment and so on, uh, there's a lot of interest in this, and there's some signs of catch-up. So, um, so again, there, there's signs of progress. Uh, the, um, the real challenge in Europe, the bigger challenge today, seems to be with what are called scale-ups. That is taking these, these tiny startups and bringing them to the next stage. Um, the, the definition of scale-ups from the OECD is enterprises with average annualized growth and employee greater than 20% a year over a three-year period and more than 10 employees at the start. So this is basically taking companies from tiny to merely small. Uh, and there, Europe definitely faces challenges. Now, the, um, the impact of companies generally is, can, can be big. Uh, one study in the UK argued that uh, even though these kind of businesses represented 1% of the total stock, um, they generate 36% of economic growth and 68% of employment growth. So the implication clearly is these things matter, and therefore the weakness matters. Um, this was a very nice quote from, the, from a co-founder of Lincoln. First mover advantage goes not to the company that launches first, but to the one that scales first. And I think there's a message there. So um, if we look at scale-ups, uh, you know, that's an area where Europe does lag. Um, again, an, an, another study found that quite substantial uh, gains in employment and uh, GDP could be had in, uh, in England. If, we're, if they were doing better. Uh, the challenges here are multiple. And you know, just as in Japan, there are multiple challenges. Access to finance is a key one. Talent is one. Entrepreneurship culture, this, should, this sounds a lot like what we just heard. Um, data transferability is actually something that's come up. I, I think that's something we'll leave for another day because it's a long and complicated topic in its own right. But the ability to transfer data between companies uh, is also an issue. So. Um, it's a challenge. Uh, my Bruegel colleague, Karen Wilson, who's a, a real expert at this instead of a dabbler like me, uh, wrote it nicely in one of her studies that access to capital is critical for SMEs and startups and that growth finance is, is, is really key for, uh, for young, innovative firms. Now, in the EU, we tend to be over-bank-centric. Equity markets are half as big as the US, which is you know, otherwise an economy that's somewhat comparable. Debt market's a third as large, but very significantly, venture capital only about a fifth as large. So this is an issue. This is really the issue. Um, there have been attempts to do things with this. The so-called Horizon 20 program included an SME instrument. Um, I don't, it's done something. I don't have the sense it's done a lot. I haven't actually seen good studies on it. Um, the Commission, the European Commission, does recognize these issues, uh, and they factor prominently into the capital markets union. So. You know, there one, one can hope. It's still sort of early days for the things that are being done there. And I'll loop back to that toward the end. 
Now, again, comparing our ecosystem to that of uh, our North American um, competitors and, and, uh, and colleagues, um, so the, the U.S.-based venture companies tend to be better informed and more in tune with their environment, with technology-based startups. Um, the firms generally are happy to take smaller stakes in a larger number of companies, uh, which again I think is, is helpful here, and also that they take a longer-term vision. And this is also important compared to banks. Um, it means that there's less of a focus on short-term profitability and a little more willingness to let the company make the changes and sometimes the, the, the redirections that are needed to ultimately succeed in the, in the sector. So again, the structure of European industry and also of European finance <coughs> plays quite a large role. Uh, this is a, a, a statistic that the uh, Commission published a year ago. It's simply, out of SMEs, what fraction were unable to get the bank finance that, the, that they thought they needed? Over Europe as a whole, it figured 35 percent, mm -hmm. but much better in some countries than others. Uh, not too bad in Germany uh, or Finland, which we tend to think of as innovation leaders within Europe and uh, much worse in, uh, in Greece, uh, also worse in the Netherlands, which normally you would hope to be better. Yes. So uh, this is based on a survey from the uh, EIB, the European Investment Bank. So uh, Horizon 20, basically the, the European Union has had uh, a framework program for years, government-funded research. Um, my perception, um, other people in the room have looked at this, uh, is that it's done a lot to create linkages between European companies, but not so much to produce real technology that was productizable. Um, in any case, uh, that program historically, because of huge administrative burdens, was quite unattractive to SMEs. The, uh, uh, the new program since 2010 uh, tried to lower administrative burden and also to be to have a specific SME funding mechanism. How well those worked yet, I haven't actually seen good data. Um, the administration is still complex. That's, that comes out fairly clear from the monitoring pro program by the commission on it. Um, it tends to be concentrated in a small number of the member states. That's either good or bad, depending on how you look at it. Um, but uh, the key challenge here, and I think this is true with any government-funded program of this type, is it's really pretty hard to figure out what you're looking at. What are the genuine benefits? Um, there was a very nice presentation by uh, Lucia Scioli of the Commission talking about the, the changes from Framework Program 7, the earlier program, to this one. And it talks about the challenges that the Commission perceived itself as, uh, as uh, facing in evaluating this. Actually, I was once engaged in a study that was trying to do this, and I would very much resonate with these issues I see. My, my former colleague from the study, Professor Cave, nodding. So uh, one of the time lags and programming cycles, forgetting of the indicators, data collection beyond completion of projects. Now, this is sort of a funny one that I'll take a second on. You know, if, if, if the European Union funds a project, the people engaged in the project can be asked to do a certain amount of reporting during the time that the project is running and also to do a final report. The impacts often are much later. And so the question becomes, who collects the data on that? How do you actually get the information? How do you see what did it actually do? And of course, if, if the information comes from the project, you have a certain bias because, of course, the people with the project want to look good. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a challenge. Um, appropriate reporting tools, um, need for new indicators as, as technology evolves, challenges generally in measuring innovation, and so on. And of course, the, the big one, uh, establishing causality of impacts, uh, which is to say, how do you know what the program actually did versus what would have happened anyway. 
So, um, so it's hard actually to measure how these programs are working. Now, another area that I wanted to touch on has to do with general European attitudes towards disruptive change. And there are different ways to approach that. Here especially I'm thinking of some of the internet companies, companies like Uber coming in. Mm -hmm. you know, how do we actually treat this? And, and this is also an innovation issue. Uh, the, um, the, the picture is supposed to represent King Canute, uh, an ancient, uh, a, a, actually considered to be one of the best English kings about a thousand years back. Um, and um, he's uh, supposed to have uh, gone to the sea with his nobles and ordered the waves to stop. And um, needless to say, the waves didn't stop. Um, but um, you know, there are ways to deal with waves of change. And then there are other ways to deal with waves of change. Um, and um, you know, so the, the, the point would be that, in, in particular, uh, what I think is important not to do in Europe is not to simply regulate away uh, innovation, um, that essentially we need to embrace and move with uh, the change that's, uh, that's hitting us. And, and this uh, potentially is a, you know, this, whether it's a government policy, uh, maybe it's a government policy in the sense of what government should not do, um, but um, changing popular attitudes is always challenging. And with popular, when we come to attitudes, fear of failure is yet another, and I was interested to hear that it's very much the same kind of issue in Japan. Uh, clearly, startups, technology startups, have a fairly high failure rate. They grow fast, they fail fast. Uh, we tend to focus in the innovation discussion on market entry, but we can't lose sight of market exit. By the way, just as a tiny aside, I do a lot of work with telecommunications <coughs> policy. The European Union has an authorization directive for companies to enter. There's no deauthorization directive for them to leave. So, um, it, you know, we, we tend to, we, we focus on what we like to focus on. So um, here, if we compare attitudes and practices in Europe, um, the attitude toward failure in the United States is different. That's what we just heard uh, also from the, uh, from the gentleman in the question a little while ago. Um, basically, if you fall off the bar stool, you know, you dust yourself off and you climb back on. Um, entrepreneurs are, you know, we have many, the United States, uh, you can probably hear I'm an American by birth. Um, uh, the United States, it's fairly common that an entrepreneur um, fails and uh, pushes on to a, a to, to something greater in a, on a second or third try. Um, also though, uh, the United States has relatively forgiving and flexible bankruptcy laws. And what that means is that the resources don't get tied up for long periods of time. So the resources can be reapplied, the people get reapplied. Um, you don't have things sitting around in unproductive use. Uh, now, Changing attitudes is tough. Uh, one could argue this is not the job for policymakers. But trying to achieve bankruptcy laws uh, that are more uniform across the European Union and also uh, less onerous is something that could be done. And in fact, also is a stated goal of the, uh, of the Commission's Capital Market Union program. So perhaps we'll see some movement there. So kind of wrapping up with some general observations. I started off with the strengths and weaknesses in Europe. Let's talk about some of the threats and then where the opportunities might be, um, just very briefly, I suppose. Um, so what we've seen here, these are problems that have been pretty stubbornly resistant to change. Um, the, this issue of venture capital uh, it goes back quite a ways in the European discussion. The issue of too little investment in R&D goes back at least 20 years. Um, and um, the Capital Markets Unions shows the Commission at least looking at the right problems. 
Uh, that was announced in 2015. A few things have been, uh, in, been brought forward as legislative proposals. It's a little early to say how much is going to be done and how well it's going to be done. But at, at least there it seems to be the right discussion. And it, it does include a major focus on better access to risk capital and also on en enhanced consistency and practicality of, uh, of bankruptcy laws. Now, there's actually a lot of research that's been done on this over the years, partly in response to the perceived failure of the, uh, of the Lisbon strategy in, from 2000. Uh, there was a very fine report by a former prime minister of Finland, uh, the AHO report in 2006. Uh, it was actually also a major component in a 2003 study done by uh, Andre Sapir, one of uh, Bruegel's own, uh, for the uh, for the Prodi Commission, for, for the president of the European Commission, which dealt with many issues, including these issues of innovation. And one sees common threads throughout. So there's lots of good ideas, many of which simply lack the political will to bring forward. But um, innovation, unquestionably, is, uh, is, is a challenge for Europe and continues to be a challenge. Um, as far as threats, the largest one that I see is the one I alluded to earlier, which is that instead of uh, embracing change, that uh, Europe falls back on protectionism. Um, there, there's not so much policy movement there as the threat of policy movement, but, but the political winds are such that things could go that way, and I would say shouldn't go that way. And um, with that, um, I left a few references, and with that, I'd like to close so we still have some time for some questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you have a question? Yeah, please. Thank you, Scott. That, that was really very, very interesting. I do have to defend King Canute. He is systematically misunderstood here. His nobles said he should hold back the waves of progress. He demonstrated to them that that was not possible. Um, so in, in, in fact, I knew that. Thank you. Although he was, let's say, more Danish than British, um, there, there was a wisdom there. There's also some wisdom from an Irish playwright, uh, Samuel Beckett, whose motto in one of his plays was, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. And what we hear from the states is added to that, fail faster. And this idea of failure, I think, is absolutely critical. No ecosystem can exist if its weakest members, if its stupidest ideas, if its least successful models are preserved in life because they drag down the entire system. The point is that the failure of an enterprise should not mean the failure of the people who are involved in that enterprise. And I'll come on to say a bit about that. But I did want to say one thing about the sort of Horizon 2020 thing. The problem, in a sense, is not a 3% target. You could imagine, for example, a very rosy scenario in which you didn't meet the 3% target because GDP soared through the stratosphere, because your innovations were great. And so you had a reasonable level of innovation, but it was just super productive because the way we measure 3% is as a percent of GDP. On the other hand, there is this tendency for investment in the private sector not to be counter-cyclical, but to be pro-cyclical. In other words, when you've got a lot of money, you invest a lot of money in R&D. When you don't, you don't, which is exactly the opposite of what we need for sustainable economic growth. So now we say, does the, private, the public sector make this up? Well, with the public sector, it's sort of tax-driven and bedeviled by this notion of industrial strategy 
which for too long has been a matter of picking winners. And as you say, governments are slow, they're far from markets, they can't pick winners, they refuse to identify losers, and therefore they create these sort of perverse incentives. We know that there's a better way, uh, we're told by some of our friends not very far from this building, that what we should invest in is effective com competition and competitors. But if you then look at the process of selection, so we have the venture capitalists who select projects typically based on the, the success or failure of individual projects, not the way financial markets would select them. So if you look at what beta does, for example, it looks at how it affects the distribution of risk across the entire portfolio. That's not the way project-by-project project financing works, and certainly not the way it works at commission level. So you might get a little bit of the thinking, which is we'll have 12 projects in a given area, and our payoff will be the maximum of these. But that, at selection time, doesn't translate into the way those projects are run. The best venture capitalists, uh, like Ariadne Capital and people like that, actually understand that there is a portfolio structure here. There may even be an ecosystem structure to the way complementary innovations work together. So I think the ideas are right, it's just the modalities with which they're expressed that sort of don't work. But anyway, I won't go on. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank Professor Cave for his, as always, very thoughtful remarks. You get to hear him in the next panel, so... Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, I, again, I think uh, that was more of a comment than a question, so we can move on. The comment, yep, please. I have one question to an aspect which is normally uh, not so much looked at, and this is the role which uh, R&D related to uh, military research can play also for the broader picture of uh, research and innovation. And as you know, the United States has a substantial R&D uh, military-based budget, 70 billion. Have you had any, and China will now, copy with higher military expenditure, also the use of uh, part of the military expenditure directly related to research ambitions. Have you had any look on the consequences of this type of R&D expenditure uh, concerning the results? Because there Europe only started now to discuss a bit a better coordination of national expenditures. Uh, I have not looked at it systematically, but I can give you a few anecdotes, both good and bad. Um, clearly, the, uh, the most obvious example of success in the United States uh, was the funding from the Defense Advanced Ar uh, Research Projects Agency for, uh, for, the, uh, for, for what became the Internet, the ARPANET. So uh, that one paid incredible benefits. Um, one that's probably less well known is that they also funded the Berkeley Unix operating system, uh, which played a quite enormous role in the development of uh, graphics workstations and, um, and um, also huge dividends and also was very much synergistic with the, uh, uh, with, with the internet investments. Um, along the lines that uh, Professor Cave was also saying, uh, here what you have is quite possibly a lot of investments that didn't produce all that much and then a couple that generated spectacular results. Um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not as if you got a nice smooth distribution. Um, my personal sense, also having worked in an in a institute that did uh, research for, the, for mostly the defense, uh, is that an awful lot of the work that's done 
even if one would think it should be productizable, in practice isn't. Um, partly also because the, the incentives for the company tend often to be wrong. A company that's primarily funded uh, doing things for, for defense research may not be properly set up to, to bring things to market, or, or may not choose to. It's not their funding model. Um, there's some, there are also some other areas. For example, uh, say uh, bomber wings get reapplied to, to, uh, you know, to, to commercial aircraft. Um, so there are some quite large synergies. I, I think it's a mixed bag is, is my, my general sense. Thank you. Oh, please. Thank you very much. Uh, Ryota Tsunemi from Toshiba. And uh, I'm also working for uh, Japan Business Council in Europe, which is an uh, organization based in Brussels. Uh, our organization consists of uh, 78 companies in, uh, in Japan, Japanese companies. And also we are following uh, EU-Japan free trade agreement or regulatory cooperation. So uh, my question is uh, related to global standard and uh, collaboration between uh, EU and Japan. Uh, how do you evaluate the negotiate potential impact of uh, free trade agreement and uh, also uh, regulatory cooperation between uh, EU and Japan industry? And also, uh, what is the role of industry both in EU and Japan to uh, make uh, more collaboration to uh, establish a global standard? Thank you very much. Um, obviously, there's huge potential for cooperation between European and Japanese industry. I think that, that goes without saying. But was there a particular area of standards that you're interested in, or uh, one in particular? I mean, for smart cars, there's a lot of opportunities, I think. Uh, basically, I'm in an uh, electronic company, so uh, yeah, IoT sector is uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, interest points. Yeah, we, we will also have an event in Germany uh, in March, which is a CEBIT. Uh, CEBIT. CEBIT, yeah. So it's uh, one mile we think it's a one milestone to collaborate between uh, EU and Japan. So. I guess uh, it almost goes without saying that the standards are, are really crucial. We live in a globalized world, um, and uh, certainly anything that relates to computing and communication, standards are, are absolutely fundamental. Uh, the ability to, to sell products in, in, in multiple markets, uh, the ability to carry your product with you and have it work somewhere else, you know, all absolutely fundamental. Um, I, I think um, Europe, uh, actually, as Professor Hajibara said, um, we have this sort of funny uh, advantage that because we already represent, uh, well, 28 members of the European Union, Europe is a bit bigger than that, um, it means that uh, you travel two hours by train and you're in another country, maybe another language group. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so standards has been an issue for Europe forever. Uh, challenges in achieving standards compliance have been a, a problem forever, but it also means that uh, Europeans tend to pay more attention to this and um, that uh, both blessing and curse is that that means that European products can be sold elsewhere easily and that uh, products from elsewhere can be sold easily here. Uh, sometimes we're, uh, we fall victim to that. Uh, you know, we, for example, in, in the sector I work in most telecommunications, uh, the telecommunications equipment industry was far more robust 10 or 20 years ago than it is today. And uh, so uh, you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, but uh, I, think, I think everyone would agree there are gains in trade. 
and standardization is an important component of that. Um, th th there is, of course, a, uh, a certain literature about what motivates companies to adopt or not adopt standards. I'm thinking of papers like Katz and Shapiro, 1985. So, um, you know, firm incentives may vary depending on whether they have a particularly dominant share of a given market. But, um, you know, in general, uh, I am a big fan of open standards and of the benefits that they bring. Any other questions and comments? Please. Just a practical one. Um, will the PowerPoints be made available after this event? Yes. One thing you don't mention with the small smaller countries than the U.S. You said there are a lot of university startups, for instance, both in Japan or EU. There's some SME instruments, financial instruments, in both um, continents. The issue is, uh, as I was a coordinator, you never address the issue that um, research uh, people doing uh, startup are spin-off of uh, institutions. And these institutions are often national with incentive mechanisms and tech transfer offices that do not match uh, the, the market uh, target of the SME very often. And not much is done to incentivize the institution as well as the entrepreneur to uh, go in the same direction. And they want to capture it when they can't usually. Well, you know, there's, there was a wonderful book that I read more than 20 years ago called Silicon Valley Fever, and it talked there about the, uh, about the U.S. model of innovation, about the factors that led to Silicon Valley, and also about other parts of the world that were attempting to achieve similar kinds of success. And the book had an interesting argument. They said, well, to, to make Silicon Valley work, or if you look at the factors that made it work, uh, certainly... Um, uh, an attractive climate to which you could attract professionals was a key component, but another one was the presence of, a, of one or more major consulting universities. And you, th this is clearly true in the case of Silicon Valley with Stanford and to some extent Berkeley, and then it's also equally true of the number two technology hub in the United States historically, which was the Boston area, uh, and there the presence of, again, a, a technically well-versed university where faculty are permitted to consult and even encouraged to consult played a large role. I think in, in European universities, my understanding is that uh, often they're ambivalent about faculty outside consulting. Uh, some of you who, who work in that environment will know this better than me. Okay, thank you very much. Another question? Yes. Yeah. Uh, this, this time a real question. Um, uh, one of the things that, that I haven't heard in this is the effects of globalization. I mean, we, we have offshored production a lot out of Europe and I think out of Japan just as much. Uh, but now the next wave seems to be also offshoring R&D. And I wondered whether that is also having an effect on innovation in, in both these areas. Yeah, um, Japanese, uh, I, I didn't mention, but uh, uh, Japanese innovative ability is restricted be, uh, because all researchers are Japanese, and they discuss the same way and think the same way. So the 
outcome is very narrow field. <laughs> so uh, Japanese people, uh, 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 government uh, will open the research in uh, the world, but uh, at this moment, uh, communic communication ability is just a bit poor. That so research <coughs> research activity is outsourced. Then uh, headquarter cannot. I'm afraid headquarter cannot grasp <laughs> ability uh, or make fail to make direct, uh, right direction. And this is my uh, <laughs> uh, prejudice. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, I also I have no simple answer to that. I think you raise a good question. I, I certainly have some discomfort with uh, with Europe's sort of intellectual capital. Uh, being exported, and of course, it's closely tied too to concerns historically over uh, over brain drain, over uh, over talented Europeans uh, uh, moving, especially to North America. There there are examples that run the other way. Dr. Cave is another, by the way. But um, it, it's it's a concern. I would tend to think that that's you know that's our value add in Europe, and uh, we we would like to keep as much of it as we can here. And yet, um, basically, the companies have to have freedom to to do their thing. If I could just pile in on that a little bit as a sort of multiple expat. In a certain sense, the model had moved not just between countries, but within areas like Silicon Valley, from brain drain to brain circulation. And the idea of individuals tied to a specific institution or country has proven systematically to be less productive. But the fact that we still define innovation largely in terms of invention does produce certain cultural limits. And in fact, Europe's record has been that they do reasonably well. This is the European paradox, right? World-class science, none of which actually makes it into, or very little of which actually makes it into successful market launches or transformative things, in part because it only involves the creative people who do the, the create the new IP. The thing about Silicon Valley, it's not just that there are universities there. It is that there are venture capitalists there. There are dreamers there who are not commercially motivated. You meet a lot of people, and you can change roles as you as an individual mature. Whereas within European universities, there are institutional incentives that prevent you from doing so. If you are being evaluated in the way you are as an academic, then doing consultancy, there, first of all, there are contractual limits to how much you can do. And secondly, you will be viewed with suspicion. And if you should do anything interdisciplinary, well, that's the end of you. It's like failing as an SME. The other thing, though, is that as these things get outsourced, they get culturally embedded in the countries uh, to which they move. And the deeper benefits, the less proximate benefits, which are not captured by the licensing of a patent back to the place from which the money came. Those things are lost, and it's those ecosystem services of innovation which are possibly the most valuable thing, and the actual invention of new products is only the kind of mechanism, in the same way that the sort of eating and reproduction of individual animals is only the means by which an ecosystem evolves. So I think you're right, this is a, a huge problem, uh, but also, you know, with, with reference to the free trade agreements, we have also not mentioned TTIP and TPP, which have, I think, at some point, perhaps in the last session, uh, I rather hope people will discuss. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm sorry, but I, I will have to close the first paragraph. Thank you very much once again to speak as always. Thank you. Thank you.